Welcome into the House of L podcast. I'm the L of House of L, Lawrence Holmes, and I am glad that you are here for this episode, episode number 73. Yeah, I thought I told you that we won't stop. I thought I told you that we won't stop. We have been doing episodes every other week, and I've had a run of really great interviews that I didn't want to wait every week to put back out, so... I wanted to get back on the the once a week as long as I can handle it from a production standpoint. And I'm so excited about today's podcast and you hearing today's podcast. I, when I was a producer at The Score a long, 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 long time ago, Mike North used to bring in Tom Dreesen quite a bit. And it made sense. Like, you know, North was a Rat Pack type dude and... Tom Dreesen was a guy that was part of that pack. Like, he rolled with those dudes. He sang with Sinatra and and hung out with Sammy Davis Jr. and on all this stuff. And I never quite, like, I got it, but I didn't get it. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that's a, a guy that he likes, and that's why he's having him on. If you do, like, a little bit of digging, and I was ignorant of it, I did some digging. Tom Dreesen is... Uh, pretty amazing he's an amazing american and considering that he's from harvey and he doesn't claim chicago he claims harvey what he's done in his life and his career is worth noting not just by me but he had a comedy career with tim reed venus flytrap from WKRP. They were the first interracial comedy team in the business. They were doing the Chitlin circuit, which is the black clubs, black owned clubs. That's why it was uh, lovingly referred to as the Chitlin circuit. They were going into white clubs and him and Tim, this is in, in the sixties, man, when this type of stuff was frowned upon and I'm being kind in that. He also played a heavy role in getting comedians paid. He's a hero to almost all comedians. Mark Marin was talking about it with him on his podcast. That when comedians weren't getting paid at the comedy store, Tom Dreesen is the one who organized the comedians and got them paid. And he is... He is beloved in the comedy community because of that. This was a dude that I wanted to just sit down and talk to. I wanted to hear all the stories. I wanted to know what he thought about things. And he was good enough to oblige. Luckily, he was in town. He comes back and forth. He was in town. And he was nice enough to come hang out with me in the studio. I'm I'm not kidding here. I'm not bullshitting you. This guy is a great American. He truly is a treasure. And after you listen to this, I think you'll understand why. This was my conversation with the great Tom Dreesen. How does a kid from Harvey become a Cubs fan? (laughs) I've answered this question many times. First of all, I was like five years old listening to Cub games on the radio. You know, and, and my dad would listen to Cub games on the radio. Without knowing, I was being indoctrinated to being a Cub fan. You know, 
not knowing, you know, not by the time I'm five years old listening to the games, learning baseball players' names in six years old. By the time I get out into the neighborhood, I didn't realize I was in enemy territory. You know, White Sox fans all around me. You know, by the time I was eight years old, I could take a punch. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they, they hated Cub fans. But I, by that time, I'm already indoctrinated, you know. So, and, and the irony of this is, is that I've been a Cub fan, but I rooted for the White Sox. I had dinner last night with Jerry Reinsdorf at Gibson's. And he's one of my dearest friends. You know, we tell each other jokes and have a great time. And he chides me sometimes and jokes with me, you know. Uh, but uh, it, it was serious because, there, truthfully, there were bars on the south side of Chicago you didn't go into if you were a Cub fan. You never wore a Cub hat around there or stuff because the rivalry was fierce when I was growing up. It wasn't um, anger or fr- it was actually rage. They hated one another. You know, White Sox fans and Cub fans hated one another. And, uh, in fact, um, uh, I forgot who it was. was. We had a long story. Oh, it was Mike Downey from the Chicago Tribune at one time. When the Sox were supposed to play, the White Sox were going to play St. Louis in the World Series, uh, or look like. that was. And he said, if the White Sox and St. Louis Cardinals ever get in the World Series, who would Cub fans root for? I slam dunk. They'd root for St. Louis. Because St. Louis is supposed to be the Cub rivalry. But they wouldn't want the White Sox to win the World Series, and vice versa. But... I never was that way. I wanted to. I'm, I always rooted for the White Sox, and you know, I'd follow their players and stuff like that. Follow their games sometimes, but I just was from childhood a Cub fan. You know. Do you remember the first time that you went to Wrigley Field? Oh yeah, yeah. I went there as a little boy. My brother and I used to sell newspapers. I had eight brothers and sisters, and and um, we lived in a shack. Five of us actually slept in one bed at one time. We had no bathtub and no shower, no hot water. It was a rat-infested, roach-infested shack. Both my parents were alcoholic at one time. So my older brother and I, he taught me how to shine shoes in taverns, set pins in bowling alleys, caddy in the summertime, um, having paper out, all to help feed my brothers and sisters. And we'd bring our money home. And my mom would put like a nickel in a little cracked cup up in a cupboard. And as that cup got filled, my brother and I could take the IC from Harvey downtown, the elevated over to Wrigley, and then go sit in the bleachers for like 50 cents in those. That shows you how old I am. And... Uh, and I remember going there the first time. And then later with the nuns, the, the nuns, I was an altar boy, and they took us one time, which caused me to tell this joke, if you don't mind me to tell. The rest of my career, I would tell everybody, yeah, I went to the game with the nuns one time, and that's they, when they wore the habits. And there were two guys sitting behind the nuns, and they couldn't see the game over the nuns' habits. And one guy got very angry, and he said to his buddy, loud enough so the nuns could hear him. I'm going to go to Texas. Only 10% of the population there are Catholic. And the other guy said, yeah, I'm going to go to Oklahoma. Only 5% of the population there are Catholic. And one of the nuns turned around and said, why don't you go to hell? There are no Catholics down there. <laughs> that had to have been uh, uh, the, quite the experiences back then to, to go and, and, and know that you're living in that crazy rivalry between the two teams where you describe it as rage. like so, so let's go to a happier place then. When they win in 2016, oh, what oh. was that like for you? I, 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 I'm going to tell you. You, you aren't going to believe what I'm about to tell you, but I went to three games at Wrigley Field because I wasn't going to miss the, seeing the Cubs in the World Series at Wrigley Field. It may never happen in my lifetime. You know? So I went to three games. <clears throat> One night with my nephew, Kerry uh, Pelosi one night with my road manager, Brandon Gold, one night with Gary Sinise, who was in town, and we went, and he's a Cub fan. So now I have to go do a gig down in Rancho Mirage in California, and it's a corporate gig. And, and I, I told him, look, I'm going to do my show up front because I got to get in the, I'm not going to miss the seventh game that they were in Cleveland. I get to my suite in time. I'm all alone. 
and I watched that game. And you know the story. It rained and all this other stuff, and, and they pulled it off. And I have been a comedian for 50 years. I've made my living speaking in front of audiences for 50 years. I couldn't talk. I was so choked up. My daughter called me. I couldn't talk. I, 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 I walked. I'm, I'm getting choked up when I'm saying that. I walked that floor, and I thought about all the people I knew that were dead, that were Cub fans. I thought about family and, and, and friends that didn't get a chance to see this. And, 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 I, I just, I, and all the joking and the ribbing we took for years and years, and good-naturedly, you know. Uh, yeah, how long has it been? Uh, 108 years, you know, people razzing. But I, and then afterward, I was surprised at my emotions, because, but I realized that we vicariously live through those guys. You know, that we're from Chicago. In Chicago, it snows, it rains, it sleets. You've got to go to work in a freezing cold, 20 below zero, but you're hardy people. You get up, you know, but every year you have a little hope. Maybe the Cubs might be in the World Series this year, you know. I used to do a joke, not a joke, I used to say, I'm, I'm worried if the Cubs ever win the World Series because the, there was a fact out that the least amount of suicides in baseball fandom were among Cub fans. And I thought because every year they'd say, well, maybe this will be the year that they win the World Series. So my thinking was the day they win the World Series, the following day, 20,000 people will be leaping off the top of the Tribune Tower. Because, because they would have lived to see it all. Yeah, what, what else is there to live for? The Cubs won the World Series. So I, that was a big wrap-up. I just was very emotional. And, 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 I, and, I, and I, can't, I can't even I make my living talking. I couldn't talk. That's how, how emotional it was for me. The next day, did you wake up and did you need proof? Did, did you do you need the proof of oh it's on TV or it's in the newspaper because I don't believe what just happened no because if phone calls start pouring in from all over the country you know I mean well umpires that I know you know I was bat boy for the Cubs for four years in in the eighties I would come back and perform at Zany's Comedy Club and then I would be bat boy the Cubs only played day games and so all the players and their wives would come to my shows at night you know rookie Greg Maddox and Jamie Moyer and you know I mean Rick Sutcliffe and I mean they they were veterans but Jody Davis and 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 all, and all the guys would come to my uh, Keith Moreland. And then I announced the game when Harry Carey had the stroke, so me and Steve Stone. And so I had all these Cub fans calling me from all over the country trying to get a hold of me because they wanted to share that moment, you know. Uh, I'll tell you how you could have made a fortune, Lawrence, and I thought about it that night. I'm so dumb. You could have been outside of Wrigley Field with a big truck and had these wreaths, and it'd say, it would say Mom, Dad, Grandpa. It would have Cub fan, Cubs win, and th- that people could have taken it because more people were going to the cemeteries talking to their deceased parents or brothers or sisters. And, and if you had those, I could have made a four. I never thought about that. I said, I, but I thought about it afterward, you know. I, I, that would have been a great way to, to, you know, make a buck and also for people to take the, the wreath to their, their family's grave, you know. I have some friends that actually, my, my friend Michael Beller, who writes for Sports Illustrated, Jake Johnson, who's an actor out in, in L.A., Chicago guy, they both went to the, Cleveland. No, no, no. They, oh, no, they, they went to the cemetery. cemetery. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, and I've heard a lot of stories like doing the talk show in Chicago. You hear a lot of stories of people taking the radio mm. to the cemetery to listen to the wow, end of the game. Wow. You know, stuff like I, I don't even know if you knew. I mean, you were at the ballpark, obviously, but did you remember when people were writing on the side of Wrigley Field that mm-hmm. they had put out some chalk? Mm. And people were writing. I did a whole story on it. There was not enough room on the brick facade for all the people that wanted 
to write messages to their family. Yeah. Oh yeah. To their, it, it was a really <clears throat> beautiful thing. Yeah. I'm a South Sider. I'm a yeah. Sox fan. Yeah. And even for me, yeah. like seeing that outpouring of emotion, I thought was really incredible. Well, you th- you think about th- this is America's game, baseball, and you and you even wonder why. But I got to tell you, I wrote a forward for a book one time, and it basically was this. It, first of all, all of us wish. And, and especially me now in my upper years, you're, you're, I'm flying here, flying there, traveling here, doing this and things. You wish sometimes time would stand still. Just if time could stand still just for a little while because it's going too fast. And the older you get, the more you're going to realize, you know, you, you'll you have a birthday. And, and actually, you know, it seems like two weeks later and that another birthday comes. You go, no, I was just, you know, 37, now I'm 38, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you wish time would stand still. So I wrote the forward to this book one time that you're driving through a neighborhood in Chicago and you come to a stop sign. Stop it. You're in a neighborhood and you look to your right. There's a ballpark in the middle of this neighborhood. You park your car and you walk into that ballpark and you go and you're going to sit into a seat that your great great grandfather sat in, that your great grandfather sat in, that your father sat in, that you sat in, that your son sits in, and your son's son in that same seat. And you're going to watch the same game they watched, the same game in the same park, in the same seat. And for the first time in your life, time stands still. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It that's did, a beautiful yeah. thought. It's and it fits so perfectly with baseball itself. Yeah, and watch a game. By the way, and you're watching the same game they watched, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's just it's it, that's what baseball is about. And and the other thing too is why do we why are fans who are fans? I I remember I once said that if somebody ever said to me I used to be a Met fan. Then I said, then you never were. No, no, I used to be, but now I'm a Dodger fan. I live out here. I said, then you never were a Met fan. No, I wasn't. No, you were not. Because the word fan derives from the word fanatic. You know, you either are a fan. If you're a fan, you're a fan for life. For life. That's why, you know, as much as I, I, I would root for the Sox, but my heart is, is, is stuck with the Cubs. You know? Right. You, be, you, you were happy for us in 05. Oh, no question. No question. But it, it didn't feel like yours. That's exactly how I felt in 16. Like, I'm happy for everyone over there. Yeah. I. I host the Joe Madden show. I love Joe. Yeah. I'm happy for him. I'm happy for all those guys. There's a good group of people that work over there. Yeah. But it wasn't my championship. Yeah. When the White Sox won in 05, I cried like a baby, Tom. There you go. It, it was, it was, yeah. I, I had a little small bottle of champagne. Yeah. I got home, yeah. opened it, and cried like a baby. Yeah. Well, I, see, again, it's hard to explain that to somebody. You know, they say, well, you know, what do you, I, I've known guys that would go into combat but would cry if the Cubs won or the Sox won. I mean, it has, it has nothing to do with manhood. It just has to do, it has to do with, with feeling, you know, we, you know they, we vicariously live through them. You know what? We get up every day here in Chicago, and we don't win every day. We fight, the, and they don't win every day. You know, they don't win every day. They, they try as hard as they can, and they come up short. They try as hard as they can, and they come up short, and that happens to us. But then one day... They try as hard as they can, and they're the best team in all of baseball. Whoa. You know, that, you know if I could have that moment. And what was that song that was on Broadway? And I think um, something about one moment, that special moment, you know. And that was that sometimes if we can't achieve that special moment individually, you know, then, then we, had, we vicariously do it through our, our sports teams, the Bears, you know. The one thing that White Sox and Cub fans agree with is the Chicago Bears. For sure. We get together there. We get together Sundays in the fall, and then we, we all are a one big family again. Yeah, absolutely. When, yeah. when the Bears are playing. I know you're going to be in Joe Madden's uh, celebrity tournament. Yeah. What do you think of Joe? 
I love Joe. I mean, me I, I met him, and, and I just think he's a terrific guy. He's a, first of all, I'm a neighborhood guy. You know, Frank Sinatra once said, a guy in the New York Times said, why do you keep Tom Dreesen as your comedian for all these years? And Frank said, you mean besides the fact that he's funny? And the guy said, yeah, okay, besides the fact that he's funny. He said, well, if I'm a saloon singer, and I am, Tommy's a saloon comedian. He said, by that I mean we're just a couple of neighborhood guys. And I'm a neighborhood guy, and I recognize another neighborhood guy. I just recognize it. And, and Joe, the first time I met him, he's a guy from the neighborhood. He's a guy you'd have a beer with, a guy you'd talk baseball with. He's a guy you'd talk, you know, whatever with, politics with. you talk whatever. He's just a neighborhood kind of guy. And, and I like his easy-mannered approach to the game, you know. And, and he's a winner. He's like you, too. I think he's really good with people. Like, I, I joke on the air that Joe's superpower is his ability to manage personalities. Mm-hmm. And throughout your career, you've had to deal with all sorts of different types of people. How do you navigate that? I, again, I had eight brothers and sisters. You know, <laughs> you, you know and, and that's, that you learn to communicate very easily, uh, you know, very young. You know. And then also my survival... My survival was that I shined shoes, you know, I sold newspapers on the corner, you know, as a little boy, you know, my older brother was kind of shy and kind of quiet. And he used to say, um, I'm taking Tommy with me because he said, uh, people think he's cute and he gets bigger tips. <laughs> but I was a talker. I was always, you know, you know, good morning. Good morning, ma'am. Good morning, sir. You know, how we doing? You know, and, and so I, I just and, and years go by. I was in the military at age 17 by the time I was 21, I had been in the service four years, and you have to communicate there. As time went by and you picked up rank, you had men, you used to work for people, and then you had people working for you. Um, you know, coming out of the service, you know, I, I did a lot of odd jobs. At one time, I was worked on a loading dock, loading trucks. I was a teamster, and then I dropped my card, and I became the foreman. Now I had 48 guys working for me that were all teamsters that I used to work with. 24 of those guys said, hey, it's good for you, kid. You know that? That's good. You don't belong loading trucks here. And the other 24 said, I wouldn't lift a piece of freight for you. You no good. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I had to learn to communicate. I had to learn how to, to, to be. I, I was a good follower, but then I became a good leader. You know? I heard you say in a couple different interviews and, and even uh, on, on your website, you talk about how important Sammy was mm. for you. What lessons did you learn from Sammy Davis Jr.? Mm. Sammy Davis Jr. had more show business acumen in his baby finger than most people had in their whole body. There was never anybody like Sammy Davis Jr. in our business. And the reason I say that, I I say this a lot, because he doesn't get the due that he should have gotten. Why do you think that is? I I, I don't know, but sometimes I see black comedians making fun of him aping him and making fun of him like, and I got him and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they don't realize he was the Jackie Robinson of show business. What this man did, the dues he paid, you know, um, uh, you know, I, 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 he was, was controversial in his time. You know, he married a white woman. He campaigned for the Kennedys and then they didn't invite him to the White House after he campaigned all over the country because he was married to a white woman. You know, um, there was a lot of controversy, but there's no doubt Frank Sinatra said, Sammy was a parade. Frank said he never heard Sammy hit a, a clinker. Sammy never hit a bad note. Frank once in a while would hit a bad note, even though Frank's the greatest pop singer of all time, and Sammy would tell you that. But Sammy Davis could sing as good as anybody out there. He could dance better than anybody out there. He could do impressions better than any impressions I ever met. He could do comedy as good as any comedian. He could play the piano. He could play the drums. He could play the trumpet. He could act. He could act. 
he, you know, and he took me under his wing for three years, and I went on the road, and I sat in the wings and watched him every night. There was never anybody like him, Lawrence. He, he was a master of the stage, a master. He, he, was, he went on stage when he was less than three years old with his dad and his uncle, you know. So what did you pick up from him? Because when it's, it, I'm sure it's like being around like an incredible athlete where you go, wow, that guy does stuff. And you're like, wait, can I do any of that stuff that that guy does? So what did you grab from Sammy Davis? The same thing that I grabbed from Sinatra, that the show, fool around all you want. Fool around all you want. You have fun, we'll have fun, hang out till dawn, you'll hang out till dawn, you know, drink, but not showtime. Showtime is a command performance. Showtime we, we put on our, our show clothes on and we go out and we give them everything we got. Everything we got. We don't slough off the show. And I, I once said to Sinatra, I know we're talking about Sammy, I once said to Frank, why are we wearing tuxedos? He said, Tommy, if we were going to do a show for the king and the queen, royalty, would we wear a tuxedo? I said, yeah. He said, well, that guy from Detroit who's a garage mechanic and that his wife the waitress and they work all year long to save to buy two tickets to come to our show they're just as much royalty as the king and the queen and we give them the same kind of show we'd give that king and the queen that's what i learned from sammy and from and from frank you know sammy showtime first of all sammy loved to perform for you another guy i toured with smoky robinson i toured with smoky for years smoky loves to sing for you he loves to sing for you. he can hardly wait to get out there and sing for you he loves to sing for you and 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 i'm that way about stand-up comedy i don't throw up before the show and go through all the machinations that a lot of entertainers go i can hardly wait to get out there you know but i i learned that that love of the stage the first time i ever went to las vegas i'd never been to las vegas like any comedian you dream of that for years now I'm going there to open for Sammy Davis Jr. And I'm driving down in a limousine, the plane landed, and I'm driving in a limousine with Sammy Davis Jr. going to Caesar's Palace. All my life you dreamed that you'd go to Vegas, and then you dream you'd go to Caesar's Palace. And Sammy made sure my name was on the marquee. A lot of big stars like Sammy, they didn't let the, they had their name up there so big that the opening act didn't get any billing. Sammy made sure that my name was on that marquee and big. He said, Tommy, if I put your name on that marquee, big then the next person you work with we set a precedent now we go inside to the, sh- the rehearsal we're going to open that night nat brandywine was the uh, conductor there, the entertainment guy we're on stage and, and we're getting ready for rehearsal and sammy says uh, nat brandywine said to me he said tommy you'll do 20 minutes and sammy will do an hour and 10 we do 90 minute shows here he said and we want the people back in the casino sammy said no nat this is tommy's first time here now keep in mind in those days they served dinner they had a dinner show when the comedian went out, he died like a dog. You cannot do stand-up comedy while people are eating dinner. You just can't. Waiters and waitresses roaming through the room, distracting everybody and distracting your punchlines. And also, Caesar's Palace has a very high ceiling. Comedians do not like working in a high ceiling. It was my worst place to work. I hated it. I'd rather work at the Sands or the Desert Inn, low ceilings. Get the, the, the sound to bounce oh, off the... Yeah, laughter is sound. It hits the ceiling and comes back at you. You set your timing off of their laughter. You know, so... Nonetheless, Sammy said, no, Nat, uh, I'll open the show. Tommy, this is Tommy's first time here. He's got a score. So I'll come out and I'll do three or four songs, and then I'll bring Tommy out. And, and, uh, and, and that way, you know, the, the room will be cleared. Well, the waiters and the waitresses were trained when the headliner walks out to get that food off that table. When Sammy walked out first, people were, in, were halfway through their dinner, and the waiters and waitresses were snatching their food away from them. They got to clear that room. By the time I went out there in the palm of my, my hand, but in, I want to digress for a second. In the afternoon, after all the rehearsal and everything, 
I'm in my dressing room, and I walk out on stage. I want to familiar my, I familiarize myself with Caesar's stage, and I'm just out there alone. And Sammy saw me. He came out of his dressing room. He said, are you nervous, babe? He always said, babe, are you nervous, babe? And I said, well, it's opening night, Caesar's Palace, and I'm opening for you. I'm, I'm a little bit, little bit nervous. He said, well, come here. And he took me, and he, the boards on a stage, you know, on a theater stage, there's boards. He said, see these boards? You earned every single one of these boards. This is your stage. Don't let them take that from you. If they could do what you do, they'd be up here. They can't do what you do. That's why they're out there. This is our house, and they're in our house. You know, I said, and so that, that whole frame of mind, Lawrence, that you think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to Caesar's Palace, and I'm going into their home, and I'm, I'm trying to get them to like me. Uh-uh. Sammy said, this is our house. They're in our house. And, and, you know, and like he said, if they could do what you do, they'd be up here. You earned every one of these boards on the stage with the dues you paid on the Chitlin circuit and all the, where we all, and Sammy worked those same clubs way before me. So, I mean, that's what I learned from Sammy. So many things, you know. Yeah, I, I can imagine that with that type of pep talk that your confidence at that moment was through the roof. Well, not only that, Sammy goes out and does four songs, right? Now the audience is, the room is cleared, the food is all out, the audience is right there up on top, and he says, I'm going to, he said to the audience, he said, ladies and gentlemen, you've been with me through the years, through the good times and the bad times, and you stuck with me, my fans, my audience. He said, when you have somebody do that for you, you almost feel like they're family. And when family does something like that for you, you want to do something for them, like maybe bring them a gift. I got a gift for you. I saw this kid. He's from Harvey, Illinois. I think, now, I used to say, please don't over-introduce me, you know, because <laughs> you know how that is for a comedian. And here's the funniest guy you ever saw. So, but he would, go, he would do this wonderful introduction, and then I would walk out, and I'd say every night, all my life I dreamed that one day I'd work in Las Vegas, and I dreamed it might be Caesar's Palace, but I never dreamed that Sammy Davis Jr. would be my opening act. And he would laugh, and the audience would laugh, you know, as, as a joke that he'd be my opening act. Yeah, he was he was great to travel with. Took time with me, taught me things. You know, um, uh, you know, just, just he just it, it, again. He was the Jackie Robinson of show business. He paid dues, real serious dues, but he never gave up. And they tried everything they could to drum him out of this business. But his talent, you you couldn't take that talent away. This this is a guy. Do you know the story, the Woolmaston Trio? No. Okay, Sammy Davis Jr.'s father was a dancer. And he had a guy named Will Maston. And they danced. They were a dance, the Will Maston dance group. Sammy was a little boy when his, when his, his dad was married, um, got custody of Sammy pretty early. He spent a lot of time with Sammy. Sammy was two and a half years old. He would sit in the wings and watch his dad, and he called Will Maston his uncle, but he wasn't his biological. He called him Uncle Will. But he'd sit there and he'd watch his dad and his uncle dance every night. Two and a half years old. By the time he's three, he'd sit there in an orange crate every night and he'd watch his dad and his uncle, and they would close the show with what they call a buck and wing. Pa-da-pa-pow, pa-da-pow, pow, pa-da-pow. They had this great dance step. They'd close with this big number. One night, Sammy's sitting on that orange crate, got up, and he wandered out on stage next to his dad and his uncle, and he mimicked them and did the bows with them, and the audience went wild. They went wild. And now coming off, Will Masson was a business guy. He said, oh, we got something here. Let's put this kid in the act. Now, they could only do it one show a night because child labor laws and stuff. So Sammy, every night, would get his bowels. He would, now, the stagehands, because Sammy would sit there every night, they built him a little rocking chair. And he'd sit in that rocking chair, and he'd wait for his, his time to take bowels. They called it bowels. 
And and one night he fell asleep in a rocking chair. So his dad saw that they finished the show. His dad picked him up and was taking him back to the hotel. His dad told me this story. You know, he said he was taking him back to the hotel because Sammy was so tiny he actually slept in a drawer. That's how tiny he was. So they took him, take him back to the hotel. And Sammy woke up halfway there, and he looked around the car, and he realized where he was. And he took his little fist, and he started pounding his dad in the chest. He said, you didn't let me take my bows. You didn't let me take my bows. And he pounded him in the chest. And his dad said, we never stopped Sammy from taking a bow from that day forward. He, he, <laughs> he said he, he became, they became the hottest act in the country, the Wilmaston Trio. No one could follow them. They were so hot. They, they played the Chitlin circuit, you know. And played the chicken chitlin circuit, and even when they worked Vegas, they had to live in Colored Town. That's where the the black acts had to live. He he paid dues like no one ever paid before. Now, the, he he started doing impressions. See, he only had one year of formal education, one year of formal education. Yet he could read the encyclopedia. You know, he was, he was a brilliant guy. He would go to like they'd do six shows a day in those days. In between shows, he'd go into movie theaters and he'd watch all the movies. All of a sudden, he started doing impressions of James Cagney, uh, of James Stewart. He started doing impressions of Brando, of all these people. And his uncle said, don't be doing no impressions of white folks. You're going to get us in trouble. You're going to get us fired now. Sammy kept doing him, and the audience loved it. So anyway, but Sammy would keep doing him. Now, they became this hot act that everybody who saw him, Frank Sinatra saw him one night in New York and just was blown away. He went to Harlem and saw the show, and, he, and this is a great story about Frank Sinatra and Sammy. He told Sammy... He saw the show and he went backstage. He said, you're marvelous. You're incredible. Sammy said, oh, Frank Sinatra. He said, you're wonderful. And Frank said, I want you to come and see my show. He was appearing at a theater in New York. And Sammy said, oh, yeah, thanks, Frank. A week goes by and Frank goes back down to Harlem and watches Sammy's show again. He goes backstage and he said, I'm, I'm angry. He said, why are you angry, Frank? He said, I've seen your show twice. You still haven't come to see mine. He said, Frank, I went to see your show. They wouldn't let me in. Frank went back to the theater, and he needed the job. He ripped up his contract and told the manager what he could do with his theater and walked off, off you know, because of what they did to Sammy. And that was the beginning of a lot of things that Frank did for Sammy. But I'm going back to, you know, back to this moment. Now, now the Wilmaston Trio has become this hot act that everybody's talking about. So they have the Academy Awards out in Hollywood. At Ciro's on Sunset Boulevard is Janice Page. She was a big star singer. And opening for her is this group that Hollywood hadn't heard about called the Wilmaston Trio. So now the Wilmaston Trio is going to open for her. Okay, she's a star. And, and the, all the people from the Academy Awards that night came to Ciro's. And these big stars had never seen the Wilmaston Trio other than Frank. They walk out and they annihilate the audience. They annihilate the audience. And Sammy decides that for an encore, he's coming back out and he's doing impressions of people in the audience. And his uncle's saying, Sammy, Sammy, you're going to get us fired. <laughs> Sammy starts doing James Cagney and, and, and James Stewart. And the people are just cheering and cheering. And then Jerry Lewis hollows out, how come you don't do me? And Sammy had never done him. So he says, how come you don't do me? Just like Jerry. And he starts doing Jerry. Now, the place went wild. The next day, Janice Page, the star, said, I go first. You guys go second. I cannot follow you. I, and they became this hot act. And then from there, you know, Sammy emerged from there. It's interesting to me that you seem to find like-minded people. The stories that you tell about Frank Sinatra uh, and, and Sammy Davis Jr. and the links that Frank is willing to go, Dean Martin in the case of the president, you know, the links yeah. that they're willing to go to make sure that Sammy has the same opportunities that they are. 
I think that it's interesting that it's someone growing up in Harvey who then ends up being a comedian on the Chitlin circuit. Yeah. <clears throat> a white comedian on the Chitlin circuit. Do you think that, that that's cosmic? Like the, the fact that you and Frank and Sammy and Dean like all like found each other? Well, I, I do think birds of a feather fly together in so many ways. But I, I grew up in Harvey, you know, my, and Harvey had a group called the Dells. They had, oh, what a night, stay in my corner. They had like five gold records. And they, Marvin, lived, the lead singer, lived across the street from me, you know. And I've known him since childhood. There's something, um, I, I, there's something that as a child, I, I was given a gift from God. I just didn't see color. I just never did. I didn't see color. I saw soul. I saw your soul. You know, I, I had um, black friends that I that, that I didn't get and black friends that I didn't get along with. I had black friends that were real close. We were close. I had white friends that I didn't like at all. And I had white friends that I, didn't. I never saw color. You know, and and I think that as time went by, obviously I ended up. Tim Reed and I were America's mm-hmm. first black and white comedy team. You know, I mean, as time went by, when I met Frank and Sammy and Dean, they were the same kind of people that I was. And I think maybe they saw that in me. I don't know. Uh, I know Sammy. The first time I performed, he saw me. I did a show. He had a show called Sammy and Company, a TV show. Lasted for a short while. And and I, I walked out. The producer was a white guy named Eric. And when they booked me on the show, I flew all the way to Tahoe. They were filming in Tahoe. And just before I was, I had a, my routine was about growing up in Harvey how the black girls jump rope, how the white girls jump rope. I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I had some jokes about that. I had some jokes about playing football on an all-black football team and some black guys I grew up with and all this material. And the white guy came and he said, listen, I saw you on a Tonight Show talking about black folks. Don't do that um, out here. He said, you know, Sammy's black. And, and I said, no. Is he? You know. <laughs> <laughs> really? You know, and, 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 and that made the director, even, the guy even matter. You know, and I said, look, this is the routine I planned. I prepared this routine. And I'm new and I didn't want to lose this spot. And finally he said, he realized the show's taped. He said, okay, just go do whatever you want, knowing they're going to cut me from the show. Well, I walked out and I started doing routines. I had Sammy on the floor. One routine, I, and, and never stuck with him. I, I used to talk about a, a buddy of mine, a, a black friend of mine named Everett Nicholson, but his nickname was Gucci. And uh, and so I, I was talking about Everett Nichols and Gucci and how Gucci was a tough guy, you know. And I was talking about Gucci and I said, and Gucci was smart. I said, some of the black guys in my neighborhood weren't that smart because they thought I was a Chinese guy named Seifu. I said, every day I'd walk by, they'd holler, Seifu. <laughs> now, Sammy rolled off the couch laughing at this, you know. So from that time on, whenever we appeared around the country, he told me that day, he said, I'm going to take you on the road with me. We appeared around the country. He would take my name off the dressing room wall. Dreesen, Tom Dreesen, he put Seifu up there. That's great. Yeah. And then we appear at the Mill Run Theater here in Chicago, and Gucci came to see me. And a bunch of the guys from Harvey came to see me. And in the middle of my show, I did the bit about Gucci, but then I said, and by the way, Gucci's sitting right over there. Give him a nice round of applause. And Sammy come flying out of his dressing room, come flying out there, and people went, and he, went, he said, where's Gucci? I want to see Gucci. Where is this guy Gucci, you know? And, and everybody started laughing, and I took Gucci backstage afterward and introduced him to him, you know. Why are you so proud of Harvey? Well, the Dallas... Look what came from Harvey. You know, we, we at one time, we had 11 guys in the NFL, graduates of Thornton High School. That's one of the reasons I'm proud. The Dells, you know, the, a black singing group that, that had nine gold records or whatever they had, oh, what a night, stay in my corner. And, and, and they always said they were from Harvey. They were proud. Lou Bedreau, a member of Baseball's Hall of Fame, 
they won the state championship. They went down to state three years in a row, and they won the state championship when you were with him as captain of the basketball team. He later went on to become a player manager for the Cleveland Indians at age 24. He managed the Cleveland Indians and played shortstop. He had 368 that year and only struck out eight times in the whole year. He's the one who came up with the Ted Williams shift. This is from Harvey, Illinois. Betty Robinson, first woman to win a gold medal in, in the Olympics. She won the 100-yard dash and won the gold medal. A couple of years later, she got in a plane crash, and the plane crashed, and they thought she was dead. They, the, the, and she landed, they landed in the field. They put her in the trunk of a car, and they were taking her to the coroner's office. When they opened it up, they saw that she was breathing. They got her into hospital. She stayed in a coma for six months. After six months, she could hardly walk. She, she was barely walking, you know, crutches and all that. And the nine, that was 1928 she won that, that Olympic medal. In 32, she couldn't compete. She worked herself, worked it back. In 1936, she went back and won a gold medal with the relay team. She couldn't kneel down, but with the relay team, she could. She's from Harvey. That's the kind of people that come from Harvey. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, I could, I could go on and on. But the other reason why I'm real proud of Harvey... That town of Harvey probably sent more people into the military, more men and women, than any other town of its size. World War I, World War II. There's 21 names from Thornton High School on the Vietnam Wall. You know, uh, that... Friends of yours? Yeah, people I knew, yeah, sure. I mean, it broke my heart. You know, I was in the service, you know, four years. But when I came out of the Navy, there was a place called Tony's Pizzeria where we hung out at. If you went in there, if there were 20 guys in there, 18 or 19 of them served. And most of them volunteered. That was during the draft time, too, but most of them volunteered. That's why I'm proud of Harvey, you know, Thornton High School. It's had its troubles in the last few years. Oh, my God, it's had its troubles, you know. But uh, they named a street after me there, a street where I used to uh, sell newspapers on the corner. And I go back every now and then, I talk to the students at Thornton High School, and I'm so proud of them. Years ago, when I'd go back there to teach in the 70s, go back to uh, talk to the students about drugs, Tim Reed and I, it took a long time to get control of that cast. There were gangbangers in that school and loudmouth and guys talking back to you and giving the teachers a bad time and all that stuff. And years went by, and a woman, and I, and I can't think of her name, but she became principal there. And now they've got a former Marine who's principal at Thornton. And they, tell, they told the children, we came here to teach, and you came here to learn. If you disrupt that, you're gone. And one year, they had 33 suspensions, and the next year they had three. And they weeded all that out. And, they, and the children come and they hug them. They love those kids. But they tell them also, we're here to teach. And you will not disrupt that or you're out of here. I go back now to talk to them students. It's amazing. The high school is still exactly the way it was. But they're attentive, polite, respectful to their, to their elders and the teachers. And, and that's, why I'm, that's another reason why I'm proud of Harvey. I did a little research on on you and, and Tim getting together and learning about the, your your work in the JCs and you guys going around to to different schools and and doing th- this routine where mm-hmm. you're teaching and talking to kids about drugs. Did you was there ever a point where you're sitting here thinking, okay, white guy, black guy, we're going into these schools. Some of them are probably predominantly black. Some are predominantly white. Was there ever a point where you went, this isn't going to work? I got to be honest with you. It was just the opposite, you know, and, 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 I, and I attribute that to prayer. <clears throat> I was struggling all I could. I, I, I had a wife, three kids. I was out of the service. I, I couldn't find out what it was I wanted to do. And, and I, I, every job I went, I'd do pretty good, and then, but then I, wasn't, I didn't feel that fulfillment. And <clears throat> I, I began to pray. I said, God, 
what is it I'm supposed to be doing? Sometimes I'd be in a bar at 2 o'clock in the morning, my buddy's having beers in front of me, and I'm thinking, I don't belong here, but I didn't know where I belong. I said, pray, God, show me. There must be something I'm supposed to be doing. I'm in the JCs. I write this drug education program. The JCs attack problems of the community and tried to solve the problems of the community and teaching you leadership training program, how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, uh, how to conduct a meeting, Robert's Rules of Order, leadership training, teaching how to speak in front of an audience. We had speak-up programs and stuff. Anyhow, whatever the problems were in the community, we attacked them and trying to solve them. Drugs were a serious problem with our youth then as they are today. And so I wrote a drug education program trying to teach grade school children the ills of drug abuse. In those days, they weren't teaching drug education at a college level or a ele- high school level, let alone an elementary school level. So I write this drug education program with going to play records and, you know, tell some jokes, get the kids laughing, and then plant the seeds. I had a white guy going to help me, John DeBoer, good friend of mine, going to help me with that. It's okay. He was in the JCs. The night I proposed it to the JCs to run it as a JC program, wanting them to sanction it, and I proposed it, and, I, and, and mentioned John DeBoer. After the meeting, a young black guy comes up to me, and he said, I just joined a chapter. I, I graduated from Norfolk State College. E.I. DuPont recruited him into Chicago as, as a marketing rep. And he said, and I'd like to help you with that program. His name was Tim Reed. I said, gee, I already got a guy, but thank you. You know, that's real nice of you. Now, the next day, talk about divine intervention. John DeBoer calls me and said, Tom, I got a new job. I can't do it. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. I meet with Tim. We start working on how we're going to do this program, blah, blah, blah. We go into the school. We sell the school system, on it, the school boards on it. That you know, How we're going to do it. I walked in that classroom. Every one of those schools in Harvey were integrated. Every one of them. So every... The moment I walked in that classroom and those black and white children saw us, we immediately got their attention. And I went, oh, God, thank you. Oh, my God. I never, if it were two white guys, maybe, maybe we would have done okay. But if one of us was black and one of us was white. We were young, and we came to talk to them. And when we would joke off of one another and get the kids laughing, poking fun at each other and blah, 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 it, it, the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries through their publications, JCs use this as a model program on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And one day, walking out of the classroom, a little girl said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. So one, a couple of days later, Tim and I were talking, telling each other jokes, and Tim said, hey, you thinking about what that little girl said? I said, yeah. He said, would you do that? I said, I'd do it. Would you? We didn't know what to do, so we agreed to do it. And we start writing what we thought was material and, and uh, for like four months, driving his wife crazy. My wife thought it was the dumbest idea in the world. I ended up getting a divorce years later. She thought, you're crazy. And especially the fourth time we went on stage, the guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face and then tried to beat the hell out of me. And I boxed when I was in the service, but he outweighed me by 100 pounds, you know. And so I come home all scarred up and beat up. And she said, see what I'm saying? You've got three children here at home and you're going out and risking your life. And, and for a precarious business like show business... But Tim's wife was very supportive, and she finally said one day, you can't come to my home anymore till you go do it because you're driving me crazy every five minutes saying, is this funny, is that funny? So we went out, and uh, we, the first time we did we bombed like something horrible. And we went up on stage and just wanted to go as fast as we could to remember our material. Hi, we're the comedy, he been Tim Tom, he's Tim Mom Tom, and we started babbling, you know. We kept remembering our lines. We rushed off the stage and got the owner in the corner. How'd we do, how'd we do? He said, I don't know. You never give me a chance to laugh. Slow down. Come back tomorrow. We went back the next day and got some laughs, you know. And the rest, as they say, is history. You know? When did you know 
because Tim is a is a brilliant man. I mean, I know they, they, there are plenty of people that have learned a ton from him mm-hmm. in, in all sorts of ways. When did you know that he was special? Well, you know, I, I tell you, just coming to the JCs, coming from all the way from Norfolk, Virginia, knowing no one, but wanted to get involved in the community, you know, wanted to get involved. That that said a whole lot to me just there. And then, you know, we went across the land. I can't tell you, 95% of the people we went liked us. By the way, there were no comedy clubs in those days, none. We worked the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs at 20 grand in Detroit, the High Chaparral and, and, uh, in Chicago here, the Burning Spear, the ga- ga- Dating Club Lounge, the uh, Guys and Gals. These were clubs in Chicago, black clubs, where I'd be the only white guy. Then we'd go work all white clubs where Tim would be the only black guy. But we worked the Chitlin Circuit, uh, Again, uh, you know, in America, in those days, the Vietnam War was raging. I just got out of service. The riots all over America. African-Americans rioting in every major city in America, feeling disenfranchised from the system. And Harvey had one of the biggest riots of them all, right where I was born and raised. I was in the middle of all that. And Gucci was, too, trying to, trying to stop this, you know. But nonetheless, in the middle of all this, you know, we're going across the land trying to make people laugh. It was like two guys in combat. Now there were no again there were no comedy clubs so if there if we if, if racism was strange is a strange thing if there was a black guy who hated white people with a passion hated them he wasn't mad at me he was mad at Tim for being with me see Tim would be an Uncle Tom mm-hmm. if there was a white guy redneck who hated black people with a passion he wouldn't mad at Tim he was mad at me I'm the N word lover and he didn't mind calling me that two or three of them get me in a in a men's room down in Atlanta Georgia and try to do a number on me but. I'm from Harvey. I want Harvey on him for a little while. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I showed him what Harvey was yeah, all yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but anyhow, so I mean, this is the dues we paid. Now, most people love what we did, but anywhere there was racial tension, that's where we went. We went. We did eleven prisons in one year. We did the county jail three or four times here in, in, in uh, Cook county? Chicago, in Cook County, twenty six in California. We also did Pontiac Prison and Joliet Prison and Anamosa, Iowa. We did eleven prisons in one year, and anywhere there was racial tension, we went. We didn't preach. We went and made people laugh. And and I'll sum it up with this, Lawrence. You know, we did a discussion and talking about Tim being special. It's like two guys in combat. We we had each other's back wherever we went. We had our disagreements, creative disagreements and everything. I could tell you some funny stories about that, too. L- let me tell you one funny story, and then I'll end with, with what I sum up on this about uh, why it was important what Tim and I did. But one time we were down in, in, in Detroit, Michigan, and, and it's an all-heavy black area, the 14th and Warren, and we were working at a place called the 20 Grand. A gangster owned a place, a guy named Bill K. Bush. And that's where Motown was in. In Detroit in those days, that's where Barry Gordy started Motown. So all the Motown acts would break their shows in at the 20 grand before they went to Vegas. Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, The Temptations, The OJs, Dinah Ross and the Supremes. That's, that was a club. Tim and I were, were, were going there to work there. And I work in a, on 14th and Warren. Now, and we're new. And we're sitting around writing material one day. And we're working in this all-black club. And we're sitting around at the motel trying to write material. And I said, Tim, I got an idea. If a, if a white guy ever hecklers, heckles you... You know, that's something that weird. I said, he starts heckling you. I'll say to him, hey, buddy, leave him alone. He's mine. You know, go get your own. Oh, my I said, God. After, listen to this. I said, after all, you know how hard they are to train. <laughs> so Tim says to me, oh, Tom, Tom. He said, Tom, that, that, he said, I think that's a bit racist. I said, oh, Tim, I didn't mean it. He said, no, no, Tom, Tom, Tim, you're not explaining you to me. You know, you're my brother, man. He said, but 
I think it's a bit. So Tim, I'm saying, he's no Tom. Don't apologize. We're creating here. We're writing here. Let those juices flow. Whatever comes out of your head, put it down. Something will come up. We'll, we'll, that's what creative writing is about. We're going back and forth here. But that was a bit racist. I said, Tim, I'm no, no. Don't apologize. I said, okay. That night, I swear, the third show, there was only like. Twelve guys in the room, brothers from the streets of Detroit. In the, in the third show, we went out. We motioned and we hit the stage. A brother in the back goes, hey, honky, what the hell are you doing in this neighborhood, honky? And Tim said, hold it, brother. Leave him alone. He's mine. No. no he said, go get your own. After all, you know how they are to train. <laughs> and the roof came off. The roof came off. They pounded the table. They were laughing. They were screaming. They were pointing. And Tim said to me, hey, man, you're right. That's, that's funny. Some smutty stuff. <laughs> But context, you know, put it in context, you know. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we did. Now, to sum up the Tim and Tom years, I'll take this to my grave. I don't care about the Emmy, the Oscar, the Grammy, and I never cared about being rich or famous. This has happened to Tim and I more than you'll ever know, where a young white guy would come up to us after our show, doing show, he said, you know what, I got a black friend. Now, this, again, this is 1969. I got a black friend that I really want to reach out to, but if I do, the white boys are going to just wear me out. He said, but after watching you and Tim today, I'm going to reach out for my black friend. A black kid would come up to us. He said, you know what, man, I got a white friend, and I really like the dude, but if I reach out, the brother's going to just give me the worst time. But after watching you and Tim today, I'm reaching out for my white friend. That happened to us more than you'll ever know, all across the land. And that, if that's what all Tim and Tom were ever able to accomplish as a team, then that's enough for me. That's what we were put here for, you know. Because today, Tim and I, we'll, we'll, we'll be walking somewhere. We see someone, we see a, a black kid and a white kid and an Asian kid walking across a campus or something. They got their arms around other, you know, friends. And we look and we just grin from ear to ear. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that when we were a comedy team, you didn't see a black and a guy, white guy walking down the street together, let alone on the stage together. You know, we paid dues that no one has never ever had to pay. And I don't regret it. And now uh, they're talking. We wrote a book called Tim and Tom, an American comedy in black and white. And they're talking about uh, making it a Netflix series. You know, we're, we're, we're meeting with that right now. That's outstanding. Mm. What does he mean to you? Oh, everything I own, everything I have, everything I'm about is because I met Tim Reed. And he'll say the same thing to you. That's what he means to me. He mean, I, 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 every, my, I don't. I probably would have been dead in Harvey, maybe a heavy drinker. I used to like to drink. I haven't had a drink in years, but I said, because I was unfulfilled. But, you know, when I met Tim, the first time I got a laugh on stage, whoa, and that was that, that, the second night we did that, I knew this is what I wanted to do. Like an epiphany, like the dark, like an old B movie where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through. I went, yes, oh, yes, this is what I want to do. The thought that you could make your living making people laugh, it overwhelmed me. I went to church the next day, Ascension Church in Harvey. I got on my knees and I prayed. I said, God, I now know. I know what I want. I know what I want. I want to be a comedian. If you could let me make my living as a comedian, that you could make a living making people laugh. I said, God, I'll do charities. I made all these promises, you know. And, uh, you know, it's funny how it works, but six years with Tim and then I went on my own. And, and today, you know, both of us agree without a doubt. He would never, I don't think he'd ever say anything different than me right now that had I not met Tim Reed you know, I don't know where I'd be. So that's what he means to me. He's, you know, without a doubt. His children are my, they're like my children. They call me Uncle Tom. They've been calling me that for years. Uncle Tom. That's hilarious considering. Considering, yeah. <laughs> you you want to hear a true story? We're at Norfolk State College. We're doing, we went back to his college to sell our book. 
and to talk to the students. And they had a buffet for us, and it's a historically black college. And we're at the buffet, and, and I'm at the buffet with, with these seven college professors, black college professors, and Tori, Tim's daughter, hadn't seen me in a year. And she came in the door maybe 700 feet away, and she saw me, and she started hollering and crossed the room, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom. And, 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 and they, these professors turned around, and they looked at her with a stern look, and I said, she's talking to me. Uh, she's Guys, talking. it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. She's talking to me. <laughs> and she can run the buggy. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and they come to see me and perform, and uh, they live, live, both live out in California, you know. What's the best part of being a comedian? You know, it, first of all, I wrote a poem years ago that I won't bore you with, but the first lines are, as far back as I can remember, or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. You know, and, and that's something you wrote, something you created. You're an artist, when a lot of artists paint and they paint beautiful, but sometimes they never get any recognition for that art till they're dead and gone. You know, and some people sell some of their art, but I can write something creative today and tonight, go on stage, run over to the Laugh Factory and see if it's fun. And, and that's the best part, to be creative, but to be able to express your creativity and get a feedback, right? Get instant feedback, you know. Uh, and also the other part is, because of Norman Cousins, Norman Cousins wrote a book called Saturday. He was an editor of a, a magazine called Saturday Review. He wrote two books called Laughter Math, and the other one was called The Anatomy of an Illness. He was diagnosed with this terminal illness. He went to the hospital, and the doctors told him he was going to die, a heart condition, from years of stress into his body. He laid in the hospital, and he thought, if negative input stress made me ill, then positive input would make me well. So he... Checked himself out of the hospital. He'd only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, The Marx Brothers. He, he, he wouldn't watch evening news. He wouldn't read evening papers. He'd only listen to comedy albums. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Now, we've always known that laughter is psychologically a deterrent. When a person is laughing at a at, at comedian, he's not thinking of their problems or she's not thinking of their problems. So the brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. It can't function two thoughts. So if you're laughing at something, you're, you're not thinking of your problems. So it's a psychological deterrent, laughter. Now, because of Norman Cousins, UCLA did research as to what happens to the human body when you're, when you're laughing. And they found out that endorphins are released from the brain into the bloodstream when you're having a hearty laugh. That's why after a hearty laugh, if you go, you're laughing and tears are rolling down your eyes and you go, oh... And that sense of well-being comes over, your body's going through an actual chemical change. So comedians are physicians of the soul. It's a psychological deterrent and it's physiologically therapeutic. So comedians are physicians of the soul. People are healthier for having had our services. Mm. That's the best part. What a beautiful, holistic way to think about your craft. So when you get a big laugh, like obviously you've been making me laugh to almost tears and hear. Mm -hmm. What's going on inside you when you hit a big laugh in a, in a filled room. It's the same exact feeling I got the first time I got a laugh of something I'd written. Yes. Yes, this is what I was put here to do. Do you know that less than 1% of the population of the world ever find out what it is they came in, in life to do? Most people never. I mean, they, they were good fathers and good mothers and good. And, and, but no, but. I found what I was, you know, there used to be a Catholic priest would say it's a calling or something. It's a calling. But I think stand-up comedy is a calling because I can teach you, Lawrence, a lot of things about stand-up comedy. I can teach you joke structure, stage presence. I can help you with a lot of things. I can't teach you timing. You either have it or you don't. And that's a God-given gift. Now, you're given a God-given gift, but you've got to develop it to its maximum potential. I, I'd introduce 
Frank Sinatra, I'd introduce Michael Jordan, and I've done this at different things. And I see people say, oh, yeah, sure, you're lucky. You had a God-given gift, but that wasn't enough. God said, here's a gift. Now, you have to take that to your maximum potential. Michael Jordan was cut from his sophomore basketball team, and he didn't let that knock him down. And he, look what he became. You know, he took that gift he had to its maximum. And that, that's how you thank God. When you, get, when you can sing. How come you can sing and your four sisters can't hit a note? How come? It's a God-given gift. You, if God gave you a gift to sing, then you should be out there singing somewhere. I don't, maybe you wouldn't be a star. Maybe you'd never be a star. But you can sing in a church choir. You could sing somewhere. Sing on the corner. I don't care. That's a gift. You know, and, and, and that's, you know, that's what I feel when I get that big laugh out there, that's what I was put here for. So is that what keeps you, even at this point, you've done it all. I mean, seriously, like you've done it all, but you still want to go out and perform. Is that what drives you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I know this sounds cliche and I know it sounds phony. I never, ever, ever cared about being rich or famous. I really didn't. I wanted to influence people. I'd like, I, I give motivation speeches at universities and at, I go to high schools like I did at Thornton. I talk on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And I elaborate on those four points and because nothing pleases me more than somebody went further than they thought they'd go because I encouraged them, you know, uh, and, and it's not, it's not, it, I got my encouragement, you know, from God. I mean, I, I prayed and God answered my prayer. You know, and, and, and sometimes, you know, one of his less fortunate children, if I can encourage them to be all they can be, that's maybe why I'll, I'll, the other reason I was put here. Hmm. Hmm. Frank Sinatra. No. Nah. I have questions. How did he find <clears throat> you? And when did you know that you were in with Frank? Because I can't imagine getting in with Frank is easy. No, but you know what? I, I, I toured with Sammy for years. I toured with Smokey Robinson. I toured with Gladys Knight and the Pips, Natalie Cole. I toured with Tony Orlando and Don, Mag Davis, Frankie Avalon. I toured with different artists all the time. But I'm touring with Smokey, and, and uh, we're at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. Smokey and I, you know, Smokey came to Harvey with me and ran 26 miles with me uh, when I ran 26 miles for Darlene, for my sister Darlene and MS. I'd bring all these celebrities in, and they'd run a mile or two miles or a block you know, uh, to help me raise money for multiple sclerosis. Smokey's the only one who ran all 26 with me. So you know he's my brother. You know, him and I, my mom used to say, if you have a friend and you ask him to go a mile and they go two miles, you got a real friend, Tommy. Can you imagine when you ask a friend to go a mile and he goes 26 miles for you, what a friend you have, you know. So I'm turning with Smokey, and we're at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. And uh, next door, Frank Sinatra's appearing at Harris, where I had appeared many times with Sammy, and so I wanted to see Frank's show because I was a fan of Frank. And um, it, w- one night I rushed off the stage after opening for Smokey, and I went straight over to Harris. It's only two doors away. And I went straight over to Harris, and I didn't even change out of my stage clothes. And I go rushing into the showroom because I wanted to watch Frank enter the stage. Frank Sinatra sometimes created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people did with their whole act. He just walk out and a place would erupt, you know. So... I want to catch that opening. I'm running into the showroom and the vice president of Harris Hotel, a man named Holmes Hendrickson, a very powerful guy at Harris, saw me. And he was talking to a big heavyset guy with a cigar. And um, he said, Tommy, come here, come here. And I reluctantly went over because I didn't want to miss the opening. And he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. And I recognized the name. It was Frank Sinatra's lawyer, a powerful guy. 
He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he heard that a million times. And he winked at the vice president, and I caught the wink. And he looked at me, and he said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> <laughs> He said, I like this kid. Oh, and he started laughing like you did. He started laughing. A week later, I get a call. You want to go to work one week with Frank Sinatra at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City? I said, oh, yeah. Gee, I figured I'll get my picture taken with him, hang in every bar in Harvey. And, you know, and uh, anyhow. And that would be that, right? That's like it. That's what I thought. I, that's what I thought. It's, that's it. I, I, I just said I opened for Frank Sinatra. The second day I was with him in Atlantic City, he and his wife Barbara took me out to dinner. And I can remember like it was yesterday. He was sitting across from me like you are right now. He was eating and he set his knife and his fork down. And he said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah, yeah, I'd do that. And it turned into 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. And a friendship that I can't describe. I stayed in his home six times a year. We started out, he was the boss of this tour. Then later we became like a buddy. And then toward the end of his life, he was like a father to me. And, and, and it, it, it and, and took me to places that I never thought I'd go. Appearing in front of presidents of the United States or heads of heads of uh, corporations and heads of CEOs and heads of mafia or sometimes in the audience. But what I always say about that, men of power gravitate to other men of power. And, and men of power in this world wanted to be around Frank Sinatra, heads of corporations, heads of state, heads of, you know, heads of, you know, members of Congress, senators. I've seen U.S. senators get in front of Frank Sinatra and get tongue-tied. Uh, 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 Frank, uh, geez, I was a big Frank. Um, um, when I was in college, uh, my wife and I uh, and Frank would say, calm down, calm down. <laughs> yeah, I Because mean, he was larger than life. You know, he, he, was, he, he just was an, an amazing uh, person to be around. And he put me in this rarefied air. And he invited me to his home. And, and he had a big compound with bungalows all along the outside of the compound that were named Strangers in the Night, Tender Trap, My Way named after his songs. And the house guests would be uh, Kirk Douglas and his wife Anne, Gregory Peck and his wife Veronique, uh, Sidney Portier and his wife Joanne. Uh, it'd be uh, Robert Wagner, Joe St. John, Angie Dickinson, uh, Admiral Shepard, first man in space. It'd be, and these rarefied air. And I'm a little kid from Harvey. These were people I saw in the movies in the Harvey Theater when I was a little boy. I'd stand off to the side and just look and say, whoa, man, whoa, do you realize where you are? You're so far from Harvey, you know. And and they treated me like like a, like a peer, you know. Uh, it, it it was it was an experience. My wife is you've become her hero because in getting ready to talk with you, I've done a lot of research and and when it comes to what you did for comedians, mm. she's big union, like she's big into union. She's uh. she's been someone who's organized union shops, uh. and you've now become her hero. I know that you have your time is limited, but I had to ask you about this just because she was was curious about it, and so was I. When it came to you guys going up against Mitzi Shore and trying to get paid for for what you were doing, why was that an important fight for you? Who at the time you were making money, mm-hmm. you were on tour. Mm-hmm. Why was that an important fight for you to fight? Because in principle, it was right. And that's, that's, that's all I can say. It was right. I came off the road. As you said, I was making money. I'm making six figures. I'm touring with Sammy Davis. 
you know, I had $50,000 worth of work coming up, and I turned it, I had to turn it down with Sammy because so, I walked that picket line for eight weeks. Um, and, and Sammy gave me his blessing, you know. But uh, it, it was so simple. Comedy clubs, were, there were no comedy clubs in America when I shouted out, and then all of a sudden there were 550 of them. You know, but the comedy store on Sunset Boulevard was the hottest place in the country for a comedian to be. Because in those days, Johnny Carson had moved out to the West Coast from New York. One appearance on The Tonight Show, your whole life changed. One appearance and your whole life changed as a comedian. Comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. It was the hottest thing. One appearance, Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. One appearance on The Tonight Show. I did one appearance on The Tonight Show. The next day, CBS signed me to a development deal. That's how powerful that show was. One day I was in the unemployment line. The next day after The Tonight Show, I had a check for $10,000 and $1,850 a month for a year. In those days, that paid my rent, my groceries, everything. For one year, I could just focus on stand-up comedy. You know, So that's how powerful The Tonight Show was. And The Comedy Show was a launching pad for all that. <clears throat> the shows that were hiring comedians, Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, Dinah Shore, uh, Mike Douglas, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand, uh, on and on. Sitcom uh, casting people were coming in the comedy store, and they were charging big money at the door. Not not big money; they were charging money at the door, but they were making big money. And then she opened up the Westwood Comedy Store in Westwood's on the other side of, uh, of L.A., and the lines around the block, and the comedians were getting zero, zero. And so I come off the road one time, but I but I have to admit that place helped me get my first appearance on the Tonight Show, and I love Mitzi Shore. I I got along with her real good, and I really liked her a lot. But the comedians all decided they, 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 you know, they weren't getting paid and they should be paid. And I went to a, a Cantor's one night. It was a restaurant where everybody was hanging out at after my set at the comedy store. And Jay Leno came in and he's complaining. She, you know, she, you know, she's not paying us. And so anyhow, the comics all decided to have a meeting. And I went to that meeting and it was total disarray. 110 comedians all talking at the same time. You know, and they only decided to go to another meeting. I went to that meeting. Again, they were in disarray. And because of my JC training... I finally said, hold it, hold it. Let me, let me conduct this meeting. Let me, let me, I'll, I'll handle a meeting because I, again, knowing Robert's rules of order. And, and I began to get them collectively to, you know, put it in the form of a motion. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Jay's got the floor. Gallagher, be quiet. Hold on. Hold on. Okay, Jay, make your point. You know, okay, let's put it in the form of a motion. And I got them organized. Once you got them organized, they were a force to be reckoned with. These kids are all out of colleges. You know, me, I'm a street guy, you know. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets, you know. So I got them organized. And when I got them organized, they were forced to be reckoned with. And Mitchie just decided she wasn't going to pay. And I kept going to meetings with her and meetings with her. And finally, one night I'm laying in bed with my wife and I jumped up. I said, I got it. I got it. Why didn't I think of this? Why didn't I think of this? I went. I couldn't. I couldn't. You know, my wife said, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, I got the answer to this. I go to the comedy store next morning. I couldn't sleep all night. I'm, I'm waiting in the comedy store. 10 o'clock in the morning, Mitchie comes in. I said, Mitchie, I got it. You're charging $5 at the door. Charge 6 Let the comedians have that $1. If they 200 people come in, they get 200 bucks. 500 people, they get 500 bucks. a split. But it's something. It's something. She said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. They're not ready to be paid. I said, but you're charging at the door. You pay the waiter. You pay the waitress. You pay the bartender. You pay the person who cleans the toilets. You don't pay the, pay the comedians. I couldn't reason with her. So the comics go on strike. Eight weeks, I'm on that picket line. Finally, I had to give a speech before Screen Actors Guild to ask him to support us. 
And and I, I just gave a real good speech that night. And she sent over her representatives to represent her. Nineteen comedians crossed the picket line. Eighteen guys and one girl. Had they not crossed, the strike would have been over in 24 hours. 24 hours. It lasted eight weeks. You know, and in the end, the kid committed suicide. And, and it was just something I never, I, I, I couldn't handle. I mean, when it was over with, I was working in Tahoe. And uh, what happened was, we won the strike one night. We, finally, Mitchie decided to, to uh, pay us, you know, because of a catastrophe that happened, you know. <laughs> it's another story. But anyhow, so we had a big meeting, and I said goodbye to everybody. And by that, by that time, the comedians had gone back. Three weeks had gone by, and I said goodbye. I'm going back on the road again, so forth and so on. And this kid, Steve Lebetkin, said to me, Tommy, please don't leave the group. If you leave the group, she'll retaliate. I said, no, it's in our contract. You can't retaliate for anybody who walked the picket line. She said, but Tommy, I called in three He said, I called in three, three weeks in a row. She won't put me on. I said, she's going to put you back on because it's in the contract. Tommy, now everybody's talking to me. I had to go catch a plane. My ex-wife's saying, come on, you got to go. I had to go to a meeting before I catch a plane. And finally, I, he was so forlorn, this kid, Steve Lebeck, and I grabbed him by the shoulders and I said, Steve, look at me. I shook him up real hard. I said, look at me. I won't go back till you go back. You got that, Steve? I'm not going back till you go back. Okay. I go on the road. You know, I'm, I'm at working in Lake Tahoe with Sammy Davis. Jay Leno calls me in my dressing room an hour, like 15 minutes before I'm going on stage for the last show. He thought I had just gotten off stage. <clears throat> I'm getting ready to go on. He said, Steve Lebeckin committed suicide. He wrote a series, he wrote, called in for the fourth time for Times at the Comedy Store, and she wouldn't put him on. So he wrote a suicide note. My name is Steve Lebetkin. I used to work at the Comedy Store, and he dove off the top of the Continental Hyatt House toward the Comedy Store next door, and he died. And, uh, and uh, I just said, I never, ever want to go back again. I just, all of this eight weeks, all of this could have been settled in 24 hours. It was just, but 40-something years have gone by, and they're doing a special there, and my friend Mike Minder's directing it, and he asked me, would you go back and just do a set at the Comedy Store? So I went back about a month ago, and I went up on stage, did some stand-up, and, and uh, it wasn't the same. It never was like going back to high school or something like that, but... Uh, I I'm I'm glad I did that. You know, isn't that guy something? The life that he's lived, the stories that he tells, the way that he tells them, he is he is a refreshing dude that should be more beloved publicly. And I'm glad that he uh, graced my studio with his time. A complete gentleman. And someone that you can learn a lot from. Tom and I, like, we turned off the microphones and we talked for, like, another 20 minutes. Because I wanted to pick his brain. Like, I wanted to find out what he thinks of the world in 2000, what he thinks of America in 2019. How we can do better. And he's just a a dear, dear man. So I'm glad that he he was available to talk some baseball, but more importantly, talk about the incredible things that he has seen and done and the life lessons that he's picked up from the greats. I love what he said about Sammy Davis Jr. and Sammy's approach to bringing people along. I feel similarly, uh, the concept of lift as you climb, to, to hear that, 
one of the great entertainers of all time felt that way is is great. It's because not everyone does. All right. I hope you enjoyed it. Here's some emails. House of L podcast at e at email gmail.com house of L podcast at gmail.com. This from Matthew who says, Lawrence, it would be great to get Kevin Matthews on your podcast. I agree with that. I haven't reached out to Kevin, but maybe I will. Willow boy. Um, I grew up listening to him and listening to him play with the art. I'm a huge fan, and I don't know if I could conduct the interview. I don't know if I should. I almost feel like I should just be like, welcome into House of L podcast. Here's Kevin Matthews, and then he just goes. But I have a lot of questions for him, too, about his career. But he's a, he's an awestruck dude. Like, I, I'm a radio geek, and that's one of the guys for me. Because I, I didn't understand how he was doing some of the stuff that he was doing, the type of risk that he would take on the air. Huge fan of Kevin Matthews. So I'll take that under advisement and see if I can pull myself together enough to do an interview with him. This one is from Dan. Dan says, Lawrence, I started listening to the podcast for your conversations with Jason Benetti and Jason Goff and kept listening because they continue the continue amazing interviews, but I felt compelled to email my support after listening to both the black like me episode and Elliot Serrano. Both of those episodes hit me hard. It's refreshing to hear these points of view from people as honest as you and the people you have on your show. Your guests have great, compelling stories, and your talent at bringing forth the honesty from both your guests and yourself is admirable. Keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep listening and spreading the word. It's from Dan out in Memphis. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. I I want everyone to listen to that episode with me and Elliot because we had a conversation. Like, if you're listening to the Tom Dreesen episode now, Go back and listen to the Elliot Serrano episode. We had a really deep conversation about religion that I think probably happens more often than not. And we talked about comic books and everything else. I mean, that the way that people are willing to open up about certain subjects, you, in some cases, you just have to ask. And everyone has a story, and we don't always do a great job of sharing that story. For those of us who work in media, we're not supposed to be the story, and we're used to that. So I always like when when one of our people gives, like Mark Rody. If you didn't listen to the Mark Rody episode, like he gave of himself. Kelly Crawl, if you go back and listen to the Kelly Crawl interview, it's amazing. Like the stuff that she had to say. Sierra Santos, I mean, she's an open book, man, and her life is unbelievable. And talking religion with Elliot through the context of comic books was awesome. So I appreciate, Dan, that you appreciate what we're trying to do. Um, And I can just tell you, as I said, I've kind of gotten ahead of some things lately, which is good and good for House of L overall. But Lauren Majera from Channel 9 is going to be on the podcast I literally did the interview right before I did the interview with Tom Dreesen. Man, I'm telling you, next week you will want to be here and you will want to hear what she has to say. And you will want to hear her incredible voice 
I got to get her on the radio, man. But you'll hear on the podcast next week, I promise you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Spread the word. If, if you're on iTunes, give us five stars. Write a review. Say that you love it. Say that you love these guests. It gets us better placement. As weird as that sounds, it's an algorithm and it works. So thank you for your support of the podcast. We're going to keep coming longer and stronger. Here we go. Next week, Lauren Majera on the podcast. It's going to be insane. Peace.